It is a joy to preach God's word this morning because the Lord has spoken, and he has spoken so that we can know him, that we can love him, and we can share about him to the world. This morning, we're continuing on in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And to start with, I want to begin with the purpose statement that the Apostle John penned himself as to why he wrote this gospel. He writes in John 20, verses 30 to 31, this clear statement. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the reason why John brought together all of these stories of miracles, conversations, and encounters of Jesus in his gospel is so that all those who read about it, who hear about it, and come across its contents would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God's anointed one who came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Everything is recorded so that people would forsake temporary pleasures and treasures, but instead pursue lasting legacies. We're able to experience this abundant life by pursuing our eternal identity as God's children through the work of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me as we go into the passage for this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit, to soften our hearts open our years so that your words of truth would make sense to us, would convict us, would point us to Jesus, and would help us to also know who he is and to love him more. Father, we thank you, Lord, that this word was not revealed in vain. So God, help us begin where we are and bring us closer to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at two signs, two miracles. They're familiar to you because it's the feeding of the 5,000 and also Jesus walking on water. But you see, these are not the only two signs in the Gospel of John. In fact, the Gospel of John records these numerous signs because there was an expectation of qualifications and phenomenon that would come with someone who claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one, as revealed in the Old Testament. This person was not just going to come in and say, here I am, the Messiah, follow me, and not fit and check the boxes that the scriptures have already revealed over time. Some of these boxes for the Messiah include these things, power over nature, the ability to produce food, heal the sick, and raise the dead. And John puts seven of these signs on display in the first half of his gospel as he chapter by chapter, story by story, builds the case that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the prophesied Messiah, and the one to follow and give your life to. I put these seven up here wanted to do that so that we could see the big picture of where John has taken us, where he is taking us, and where he will be taking us going ahead. 
So in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus changed water into wine at a wedding in Cana. In chapter 4, he healed the royal official's son. In chapter 5, he healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, and this is actually what got him in hot water right now. Right, today, we're going to be looking at feeding of the multitudes, the 5,000-plus women and children. We're going to be looking at Jesus walking on water across a windy sea. Later on, in chapter 9, Jesus will heal a man who was born blind. And then later, in chapter 11, he will raise Lazarus from the dead. All of these occurrences and miracles and signs identify Jesus as being the one, and them coming together in the way that points to perfection and completion in the number seven allows the reader to truly find confidence in that Jesus is God's anointed one. Today's passage then is about two of these signs right in the middle, these miracles which are familiar to many. However, when you see where the signs fall and it's in the middle of these seven, you may be able to appreciate the significance of why things happen the way that they are. And so if you will please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6, we're going to begin by looking at the first, six, uh, first four verses, and it's going to be on the screen as well. The first point in these, first four voices, uh, these four verses is this, that in the Messianic expectations that the Jewish people had, that just like Gatorade reminded us to be like Mike, that there was an expectation that this prophet to come was to be like Moses. Let's take a look at what the passage says. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Please bear me with me here. I'm going to try to connect some passages together because when you see a connecting phrase like after this, it's really important to find out where we just came from. And so I'm going to take us back a little bit, take us back a lot more to point to Moses, and then take us back to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So what happened right before this since John said after this? Well, there was a direct Moses connection in the passage that we just looked at and preached through in chapter 5. So in chapter 5, Jesus declared that he was doing the Father's will, that he was acting out of the Father's power, that God has sent him with the authority to judge and with the keys of life and death. This angered the religious leaders who did not believe in him to no end. They were absolutely over their heads with anger. This was, though, not new information if you paid attention to Mosaic Revelation. So here's what Jesus said at the end of chapter 5, the connection between him and Moses. Starting in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. We'll come back to Moses accusing later. 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, making a connection between Moses and Jesus. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, please follow me as I go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, because let's look at what Moses wrote of a coming prophet. The verse that's up here is verse 18. 
But I'm going to start reading from verse 15, which sounds very similar to 18. And I want to take 15 all the way through then up to 18, which you see in front of you. Moses wrote this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Here's some observations. There will be a prophet coming. This prophet will be like Moses. This prophet will be an Israelite, and this prophet would be a mouthpiece of God that calls then people to obedience and to attention. This is what Moses said, and Moses then described and addressed who this coming prophet will be and how you are to receive him. The Jewish religious leaders in chapter 5 did not do that. And that's why they stand accused by Moses. But let's move ahead then and come back to chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. All of a sudden, you see some similarities to Moses, don't you? Just as Moses led an entire nation out of slavery in Egypt into a desert, wandering for 40 years, mind you, a large crowd was following Jesus, one that Jesus did not try to accumulate. They just followed him. They were interested in knowing more, and they were following him around. Just as Moses was the one that God used to bring about the declarations and also the announcements and pronouncements of the plagues, Jesus was doing signs. And Jesus was doing things that were supernatural. Just as Moses committed desert miracles and pointed to God for those miracles and pleaded to God for them, Jesus had miracles around his words and deeds as well. Jesus went up on a mountain. Moses always went up to the mountain. He went to the mountain to meet with God. He went to the mountain to pray to God. He went to the mountain to receive the law. There was a connection there. And then finally, the ultimate connection between Jesus and Moses, verse 4, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This was directly related to Moses. This was the final, mark the final plague that then finally let Pharaoh set the people free. This was what identified God's people with the blood on the post of the lamb and those who weren't his. This defining miracle, the greatest plague, this was happening right now as Jesus was speaking and teaching and working. You see, the title of today's message is Jesus, the True and Better Moses. You could also flip it around and say that Moses gave us a preview of the perfect Christ, because Moses was certainly not perfect. He was a type of Christ. 
Here are some more similarities between Moses and Jesus. They both spent time in Egypt. There was an occurrence of male babies being killed related to them. They were both declared to be prophets. Moses did God's will. Jesus did the Father's will. Moses was a shepherd for a long time, and it shaped him greatly. Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd. Moses was close to God. Jesus was sent by God and one with God. Moses was a law giver. Jesus gave us laws as well and helped us understand the meaning and the totality of the Old Testament laws in light of loving God and loving neighbor. Moses performed signs and wonders. Jesus performed signs and wonders and brings us to today. We'll look at two miracles. They will connect and confirm Jesus' identity as the prophet sent by God as promised by Moses. But let's engage these miracles maybe with fresh eyes in that let's see them through the lens of Moses and a mosaic history and a mosaic reference and see what we're able to glean from there that helps us to fulfill the purpose for which John wrote this gospel, to believe in Christ as the Messiah and to live abundantly. The next point then is the first mosaic miracle, feeding of the multitude. I know it's casually mentioned as feeding of the 5,000, but um, the gospels clearly tell us it's 5,000 men and then there's women and children. So it could be upwards of 20,000 people, who knows, but it's a lot of people. And Jesus fed them supernaturally. Starting from verse 5, John wrote this, Lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus, then, and seeing that the large crowd was coming towards him, he identifies a problem. What is the problem? Yes, there's a large crowd, but that in and of itself is not necessarily a problem, but the synoptics tell us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this crowd have been following Jesus for the whole day. Jesus didn't summon them. He was meeting with God, and they learned of where Jesus was, and then they gathered, and they started following him around. They've been following him the whole day, and now they are hungry, and it was coming to the end of the day, and certainly they need a place to sleep. So physically, there's a problem here because everyone is hungry and everyone is exhausted, but they wanted to hear everything that Jesus had to say. Well, the disciples had a solution for this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Send them away. They need to go feed themselves. They can come back tomorrow. They need to sleep somewhere else. They can come back tomorrow, maybe. Or if they don't come back, they're probably okay. It's a long day. But they need to go. That was their response. And that made a lot of sense. They didn't take personally this expectation to feed this many people. That is crazy. And they are correct. But see, Jesus had more in mind because his response to them will demonstrate that there's something greater that he is about to do here, even though it is just as impossible to imagine. It doesn't matter how much technology or advances that you have. You just can't imagine the task that is ahead. You see, this is all part of what God is doing through Jesus to affirm his identity as the Messiah. Jesus is in the business of executing God's will and fulfilling his purposes. So there's more that's going to happen, and it's more than meets the eye. 
Second half of verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I can almost hear a little bit of sarcasm here, but let's give the benefit of the doubt that he is being sincere and respectful to his rabbi. Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little, and he is correct. A denarii, a denarius, is a day's worth of wages. So it's saying 200 days of normal laborers' wages can certainly not feed these possible tens of thousands of people, not even with a little bit, certainly not to where they're satisfied and not hungry in our situation changes. He is absolutely correct. The Bible goes on. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew is also correct. I would say with five loaves and two fish, we can't even feed one section of this congregation. Imagine 5,000 men and women and children. They have resources, sure, if you want to call them that. But are they helpless and hopeless? Yes, if nothing changes. These are hangry people, and these are going to be people that aren't going to be easily dismissed. So what is the miracle? Starting in verse 10, John records this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so as also the fish, as much as they wanted. So Jesus sat people down. Luke records it as being groups of 50s, very organized. And he performs this miracle for which we don't know any more detail than that five loaves of bread and two fish just kept on being enough in the hands of Jesus. You know, this is one of those reels that I would love to see. This is one of those things where I'm in heaven, I would love to, to get a recap of this visually. The Bible doesn't explain the mechanism of this, but just that in the hands of Jesus, food just kept coming out from these five loaves and two fish. Truly a miracle. And not just enough for everyone to get a scrap. Not just enough for everyone to get a crumb, but enough for everyone's satisfaction and fullness so that they're not hungry anymore. You can't explain this, except that this is supernatural, that this is from God. Let's go on in verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Not only was there enough food for everyone to go around, there were leftovers, enough for every single disciple, there's 12, to have a souvenir, to take it home and be reminded of the fact that, wow, Jesus can make abundance out of hardly anything. Jesus can satisfy the needs that we have and give us overflow. Jesus has this connection with God that we certainly don't have, but 
in this relationship that he has with God. He has the authority of God. He demonstrates the power of God. And we have tangible evidence of this in our hands. Undeniable. This man is so much more than a rabbi. See, if you make a connection to Moses, you think quickly of the ways in which Moses was a part of pointing God's people to trust in the provisions of God as well. That as they're wandering in the desert, that they looked to God to provide them for their daily bread, for their manna that came from heaven. And this was a daily bread that they needed to look to God always and consistently because without it, there was no way by which they can grow anything in the desert where they could sustain and keep themselves, not to, want, not to even consider all the ways in which they have wandered about in all those years and other things that they had to deal with. So they were completely dependent upon God. And as God provided food, Moses pointed God's people to him. So God sent manna every single day from heaven, but Jesus was making more bread and fish in front of people. There was something connected to Moses, but there was something greater than Moses about Jesus. And this was certainly not overlooked. Here was the response of the crowd, starting in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Ah, so the people now are making a connection to Deuteronomy 18 themselves. They're thinking, oh wait, there is a coming prophet who will be sent by God, who will be reminding us of Moses, but actually will be greater than Moses, who is coming. We've been waiting for him, and this is him. So then what are they thinking? Let's crown him with many crowns. Let's make him the king. Let's let him be our Moses that liberates us from slavery and occupation from the Romans. Let's let him do those miracles right now in our midst that are 10 times, 100 times greater than reproducing food. Let's let him take over, lead us, and let's let him take us towards conquer and defeat of our enemies. This is the greater Moses that we have been waiting for. So we see the connection to Moses, but we see Jesus' response. You see, there's a difference between Moses and Jesus in this. From the very beginning of Moses' call, you saw that there was a sense in which he didn't feel that he was qualified or adequate. Sometimes you wonder if that's just him making excuses and not trusting in God, but nonetheless, Moses needed some convincing even from the Lord and support from God to begin his mission as the one who will lead the Israelites out of Egypt. So he had definitely a realistic view of himself. He certainly knew that he was flawed and imperfect and not adequate for this mission. God supplied what he needed, and God 
more than compensated for everything that he was lacking in and using him. But see, Jesus is the opposite. What do we know about Jesus? That he's a member of the Trinity, that he is the Son of God, that he made the world, and that he reigns even today, that he will return, that he is raised from the dead. Jesus, even at this time, even though he is in human form, 100% human, Jesus is not going to settle for anything less than the fulfillment of God's mission. He's the opposite. He knows the reason why he came wasn't to reproduce food and to lead an army to victory. The reason why he came into this world is so that he could be that perfect lamb who would be crucified on the cross for the sins of humanity and redeem a people, put together a family that will live forever and eternally, enjoying abundant life as God's children. He's not going to settle for less right now. He's not going to get distracted and go lead an army and free a nation. No, he's going to free all sinners. So the Mosaic connection is there, but he's the opposite here, isn't he? So what does he do? He retreats. He goes away, and let's never forget this. And one of the reasons why it's so important for us to gather together anytime, especially in the middle of the week, to pray is that after something so powerful so authoritative, he wants to disappear so that he could be closer to God. Because he's about doing God's work. He's not about impressing people. He's about turning to God to be recharged and refreshed. He's not about living off the praises of others. That is the first miracle, and that is the Mosaic connection. But we see how different Jesus is because he is the true and better Moses. Let's go to the second point, or the third point, I'm sorry, which is the second miracle, crossing the windy sea. Starting from verse 16, John said this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. This is about six miles away. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We see the problem again. The disciples, by themselves, without Jesus with them, they were in the midst of an extremely tumultuous storm. The reason why they were out there without Jesus is because the synoptics tell us that Jesus actually chose to stay back, to continue to engage with the crowd, and to be able to wind down their gathering, to be present with the people that came to seek him. And so he was going to go across the sea later. That's why he wasn't with them. So then they're rowing along. They're about two-thirds of the way there. And then the storm comes, and it is something that they were absolutely not prepared for, even as professional fishermen, some of them. This was clearly a storm that was extremely scary and overwhelming to their experiences and their talents and their wisdom. 
The sea was rough. But here then was the miracle. Jesus showed up. Let's not even read any further to think about the stuff with the winds and the, everything else. It's the fact that Jesus had a four-mile lead for the disciples, and all of a sudden he's there. I mean, he's fast. Speedy man. But he also came to them by walking on water. And the Bible is very clear that this isn't one of those, you know, strange videos that people make of, like, faking walking on water. This is walking supernaturally across real water during this wind, during the pouring rain, during this scary situation. That didn't seem to face Jesus at all. Apparently, that's not a big deal. But the people in the boat, his disciples, they were scared to death. They were so frightened by Jesus. They thought he was a ghost. And probably we would too. What is Jesus doing without another boat, without any help, without any fear, right next to them? They must be dreaming. This must be some kind of a strange occurrence. So what did Jesus do? Well, I mean, Jesus didn't jump in with the fear. Jesus just pointed to himself. Jesus identified himself and said, here I am. It is me. Jesus, you were just with me. Remember? And he calms their fears. Do not be afraid. See, Jesus is always one to minister to the heart. If he was only about solving a problem, he wouldn't say those things and he would just calm them down or calm the storm down or bring them to safety and then explain later. But he sees where they're at and he ministers and reaches to their heart's fears, which allowed them to welcome him into the boat with gladness. That immediately they recognized Jesus, that he wasn't a dream, that he wasn't a strange manifestation or some kind of a spiritual, I don't know, occurrence or attack, but that this is their Jesus. This is their rabbi, the one they are growing to know, to trust, and to love. We find in Matthew uh, this uh, recording of Peter then walking on water as it relates to Jesus coming to them. But I don't think that's the main point. I think Jesus walking on water to them is the main point. So where's the Mosaic connection here? Well, Moses also led a frightened nation of Israelites with an army on their backs, chasing after them, ready to re-enslave them again to submission. And he led them across the Red Sea. The waters parted. They went through in awe and in safety, and it was the wind that parted the sea. See, the control and the connection to nature cannot be disputed. That Jesus is the true and better Moses that is able to do these things. Because did Moses do those things? No, God did. But did Moses, did Jesus walk across the water? Yes, he did. There is a difference between the two. The miracle was that Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up, he demonstrated his power and authority over nature. But even more than that, 
he demonstrated the heart of a good shepherd to his disciples. What an amazing miracle. Let me show you guys the big idea, and then I do want to talk some about how we can consider application as it relates to these two miracles. The big idea is this. Jesus is the true and better Moses whom God sent into the world to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Moses whom God sent into the world to save his people. Well, what would application look like? Well, it would be how we could consider how these two miracles would help us to believe and live, right? Believe in Christ and live in abundance in him. So I have a couple of thoughts that I wanted to bring your way. The reason why these two miracles are so common is probably because we have heard them, whether preached or spoken of or casually referenced, but the focus is not on our big idea today of Jesus being the true and better Moses whom God sent to save sinners. The focus tends to be on the person telling you the story or the person that wants to be prayed for or the person that's trying to manifest something in a place. People use these miracles to kind of, in a strange way, make it about them. And I don't mean that they necessarily say, oh, Jesus didn't do that, or it's about me, I can do that. I'm not saying that they're assuming the position of Jesus, but I'm saying that people often use these miracles in a way that makes you think that, you know what, if Jesus can do this, then he can help me do this. If Jesus can feed the 5,000, I can feed my family. If Jesus can walk across the sea and calm the storms, then I can get away through the whole pandemic without getting sick. Do you see what I'm saying? That it's using the stories and the miracles, but it's not about Jesus at all. It's about you and how you can have a better life today. I actually think this is the exact same problem that the people then had. That's the reason why when they saw Jesus do this miracle with the food, they said, oh, he's the one. Put him in the front. Crown him with many crowns. Lead us to victory. Set us free so we could have a better life. That's exactly what Jesus didn't want. Imagine if the God of the universe, who will make everything new again, renew and refresh the new heavens and new earth where we can dwell in fellowship and communion with him and our brothers and sisters forever with no sin, with no tears, and everything in perfection, with everything in its highest, most optimal capacity and how he made us to be and how we can know him and love others. That's heaven. Imagine if we settle for anything less than that and made that our main thing in life. Imagine. You know, there's a self-centeredness that sometimes comes from these miracles when we try to apply them. There's this effort to, to work for more miracles, especially for you, but not to necessarily worship the Messiah. What can Jesus do for me? What can I get out of him? What advantage do I glean from knowing and professing the name Christian? 
Now, I'm saying this not because I'm saying that I have this down and you guys are all in the wrong, or we have all this down and the world is in the wrong. I'm saying that this actually is something that should be more and more as we allow God to open our hearts and to search us, a constant temptation to view and to apply the power of God. Let's pursue earthly blessings. Let's get his help for worldly gain. Let's acquire all that we have in Jesus' name. Do we desire the gifts or do we desire the giver? And if God is gracious at all, in many of our lives, he will do exactly the hardest things sometimes in us and to us so that the gifts look to be as superficial as they are in light of eternity and that we can come to know and recognize that only the giver gives forever. See, our view of these miracles sometimes reveal where our hopes and treasures are, pointing again to this passage and how it actually began with Jesus being up, spending time with God. The synoptics cover this a little bit more. The crowd gathered when they found Jesus, and then after the first miracle, Jesus retreated again to be with God. And you will find this constantly over and over again, that Jesus knew that the greatest treasure, the most significant relationship, the most meaningful encounters are between him and God and how you can grow closer to God. Jesus responded to and prepared for his ministries and occasions of the day by spending time with God. But you also see that Jesus ultimately is allowed, and I would say able to do the things that he does that are countercultural to us because he finds his identity in God. He doesn't need the approval of people who are not interested in the same things and knowing the same one. So the first consideration for you from these two miracles is just this. Do you want to work for more miracles and look to God for more miracles in your life? Although God does do miracles, and we praise him every time he does. Or can we personally and collectively grow in our desire to worship the Messiah? Matt Carter and Josh Redberg, they're two pastors who penned a commentary on the Gospel of John. They said this, The only way to come to Jesus is to lay down your expectations, put aside your requirements, let go of the strings, and follow him. When you do, you will find that not only is Jesus greater than Moses, but Jesus is far greater than anything you can ever imagine. Desire to know the giver. Don't settle for the gifts. Here's a second thought. And this was shared both by Jesus and Moses. A lot of times we see Jesus and Moses and maybe we could create bullet points and put them on some kind of a theological grid for the things that they teach and demonstrated how they are alike and how they're different, how Moses pointed ahead to this 
and to God, and then Jesus fulfilled it. We could kind of make this an exercise of intellect, and that's important because we should know these things that God has revealed to us. But sometimes we forget that both Moses and Jesus were not driven only to straighten your theology. Moses and Jesus were driven even in their smallest of actions by a compassion for people. There was a compassion to demonstrate God's love towards fellow image bearers. In the case of Moses, in the case of Jesus, may we reflect more into his image. They were driven by compassion. How do we know this? Well, we see both Moses and Jesus interceding to God on behalf of the people numerous times. Now, I'm not going to go into this passage, but we remember the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Moses was doing his part in representing the Israelites, being in the mountain, visiting with God, not even able to fully see God, but speaking with him, hearing from him. Meanwhile, those impatient Israelites were down there getting bored. Where is Moses? What's he doing? And so then they talked Aaron into melting down all of their most precious of treasures, which in and of itself is so symbolic, isn't it? That these are their most valuables into this golden calf that then they can worship and dance around and have a good time with, like the pagan nations. And that's the connection. That's what the pagans did. Yahweh is not this golden calf. So what happens when God finds out? I mean, of course, we're hearing this from Moses' recording, right? I mean, God's omniscient. He knows everything. But what happens from Moses' understanding when God finds out? Well, he was angry. He was so angry that he said, these people are stiff-necked. Cultural allusion to someone that's just stubborn, without help. Just there's no rescue for these people. I'm just going to kill them all and start over with you, Moses. That was God's wrath put into words, his anger. So then what happened? Well, Moses knew that there was only he who could come between his people and God. So, I mean, it would have been easier to say, yeah, sounds good. Start brand new with me. I'll be number one, and we'll do this all good. No, he had compassion for his people. So what did he do? He went up to the Lord, and he said, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Remember you saved them. They are yours. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. He interceded, came between God and his people because he had compassion. That's what drove him. And it's dangerous, isn't it? To come between God and his anger. But that drove him. You know, what does the New Testament declare to us about Jesus? That in Romans 8, that Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of God. This is an active ministry that Jesus has right now. 
we're not alone in this world as his people. In Hebrews, we're reminded that Jesus lives to intercede for the saints. So he's a coming between God and us. But see, it's not that God hates us. It's that God loved us that he gave his son so that we wouldn't be condemned if we put our faith in him. God is just. God is love. The two meet together in the work of Christ. Moses and Jesus also demonstrated their compassion and love for people by responding with acts of service. You know, the next day after God relented, from Moses' perspective, he said that now I go up to the Lord, he's speaking to the people, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He offered himself as the one that if God's anger needed to be satisfied in the death of somebody, make it him. Make it Moses. He'll take it. Jesus, later on in chapter 6, or not later on, but in Mark chapter 6, said this about the story that we read today. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do? He began to teach them many things. Now, Jesus, in a very final way, did something that Moses could never do. See, it was pointless to kill Moses for the sake of the people, because what can Moses offer? But what Jesus did is that he was able to make atonement for our sin through his perfect obedience of the law and his sinless death on the cross. If we put our faith in Christ, God declares us righteous because of Christ. So he's able to do what Moses had volunteered to do but could never accomplish. And the Jewish leaders did not want to buy that at all. You see, they had a monopoly on what it means to be made right with God according to their system. They have the law. They know the wrongs and rights. They know the rituals. Follow them, and you might be okay. This is why they stood accused by Moses, because Moses pointed to Jesus. But Jesus, through his perfect sacrifice, is able to ultimately demonstrate God's love as he bore the wrath that we deserved to bring about the justice that God deserves. See, we don't get accused by God. Let's remember the famous passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but he have eternal life. But verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And how do saved people live? In gratitude, in obedience, keeping covenant, because we've been loved greatly and purchased with a price. In this hurting world that we live in, I think that each of us 
can engage the people in our homes, people in our workplaces, in our communities, in our lives with Christ-like compassion. Now, will we do this perfectly? No. And are we supposed to save the world? We can't. But I do think that motivation shifts and shapes how we do what we do because it changes why we do them. And we do all of this to the glory of God's praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, God, for today. And we thank you, Lord, for these amazing miracles that are just as astounding today for us as they jump off the pages of Scripture as they were for those who witnessed it in person. We thank you, Father, that Christ truly is the one, as prophesied by Moses, to be the perfect Messiah, Savior, to save us and rescue us from the punishment that we deserved for our sin. Thank you, Lord, that he is truly the atonement that enables us to be reconciled to you. So God, if this is our faith, if this is our profession, if this is what we believe in, may we live it out. May we live it out desiring and prizing to know the giver above and beyond any gifts that we may receive. And may you strengthen our faith so that we may live out the love and the compassion that you demonstrated to the world through sending your son Jesus and that Jesus demonstrated to the least of these that came to him simply because he had compassion on them. Help us, Father, to be people who point to the one who can set them free, truly and forever. And may you forgive us if our witness is one primarily of accusing. Help us to point people to the liberation that is eternal life through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And help us to do that together as the family of God. In Christ's mighty name I pray. Amen.